Arthur gave me Station Eleven. And when I read it, it didn't matter that the world was ending. Because it was the world. Tyler. You didn't come back here for that. Then why did I come back? Because they didn't die. They're all still alive. Welcome to Station Eleven, the podcast, a show that dives deep into the HBO Max limited series Station Eleven. Every episode will be joined by a member of the cast or crew of the show and find out not only their approach to the characters and stories, but we'll also reveal special behind-the-scenes insights into production and the process. I'm Patrick Somerville, creator, showrunner, and executive producer of Station Eleven. And I'm Angelica J. Bastian. I'm a writer and pop culture critic for New York Magazine site Vulture. Each week, Patrick and I will sit down with one of the many talented collaborators and artists from the TV series and talk about storylines, themes, and characters. We're also going to talk about what it's like to tell a story about a pandemic while living in an actual pandemic. It's going to get real. Today, we're joined by actors Mackenzie Davis and Daniel Zavato. Mackenzie plays our prickly, yearning, and soulful Kirsten Raymond, and Daniel plays the ever-surprising Tyler Leander. There are all the reasons in the world, which I've struggled with a lot, for Kirsten to hate and kill Tyler. At the core of who he is, he's very much a hurt young boy. Yo, Patrick, I am so hyped to talk to you about this episode. This is like one of my favorite, favorite episodes of the entire show. There is something about 108. I think when I watch it, I experience 106 as the one where Mackenzie steps forward and there's no longer question about whose show this is. But then 8, I really feel like we finally had enough pieces on the table, like chess pieces on the table, to start doing some really rich stuff with our before and our after and the way that we bounce timelines. And then our performers, both Mackenzie and Daniel, but also David Wilmot and Caitlin Fitzgerald, just everyone is sort of on fire. And that goes for Helen, too, who we met earlier in this podcast for for this whole thing. And so we're going to talk to Mackenzie and Daniel later, but I feel it with eight when I watch it. I just love this episode. Yeah, it really does have that fire. Yes, pun intended. Multiple fires. Multiple fires. (laughs) But fire, like that energy is there and it's also there visually. And there's just so many scenes that are so rich and multi-leveled subtext. It's hard to pick just one that I want to start with, but I really feel we have to get into the conversation, actually, let's say, argument that Arthur and Clark have. And when Mm -hmm. they kind of get into talking about Miranda and the nature of art and what we need as artists and what's the point of it, I am so curious to hear where you kind of land personally. Ooh, you caught me at the end there. I didn't know you were going to say that. As much as I don't like some of the things Clark says, 
I agree with some of the things Clark says. And I don't know about you, this scene is a scene where I feel like I've fully lived both sides of this argument. I've been Arthur and I have been the Clark. I feel like I've also been the Miranda and I've also been the bellhop. <laughs> like, oh yeah, I've definitely like, been the bellhop, maybe more than I care to admit. Like, wait, what? <laughs> uh, and I've been Tyler and I've been Elizabeth. But like, after seeing five, we're a little naturally predisposed to be wary of Clark and be seduced by Arthur Ooh. in this scene because he is seductive. And like Gael in real life, it's impossible to not like everything the man says. He also like absorbs some barbs from Clark. Oh, he does. Without nastiness coming back out of him. Like in the early part of that scene, when they're sitting at the table, Clark says some raw shit. Like that's because they don't push back against you. You're aware of that, aren't you? What about nice people? Or quiet people, or even better, people who don't even think like that at all. People who only make things for their own private reasons. Arthur, you like those people because you dominate them from the start. What does that mean? They don't push back against you because you're a movie star. Oh, come on, you're aware of that, yeah? It's really intense, hostile shit for people who haven't seen each other. But Arthur casually forgot that his friend had been sober for nine years. He really forgot. Kind of tells you everything about how much Arthur's been thinking about Clark since they got together. So like, it's just one of those awkward, like, it sucks when you're with your best friend and you're small talking. Yeah. And you can feel that shit, though. You can feel it. And it's like, how did we get here? Like, yes. why are we here? Like, why are we talking like we're strangers? You know what I mean? And that awareness even makes the whole situation all the more awkward and painful. The answer to your question, why are we here, it happened in the other scene. Because Arthur makes people feel invisible. When he shines the light on you, you feel so good. But when he takes it away, you feel dead. Arthur's been causing destruction, but maybe not knowing it. Mm -hmm. Over and over again, there's microaggressions left and right coming out of Arthur in the buildup. He also has no idea who Tim is. And then Tim is like, try to just not lose your temper, please. And (laughs) (laughs) I love those texts and stuff. I was like, ooh. (laughs) It's, It's tough getting together with your friends when you're not as good friends as you used to be. You said you agreed with some things that Mm -hmm. were said by Clark. And I'm curious what specifically like would you flag as something you agreed with with regards to his perspective? It the truest he feels to me in the scene is when he said she was tied to a boulder sinking to the bottom of the sea and you were upset she didn't like your heist movie. I mean like damn, ain't that a line? Oh Damn, what can you even say in response to that? Well, Ga- what Gael plays right there is sort of like, <laughs> like he kind of turns, his, like he's like, that's too true for me to say words back to you. But like those moments are so hard to get to with your relationships because that's enough to destroy a person. Like yeah. Clark delivers, like he does in five, he delivers hard, big truth sometimes. So 
he heard him enough to revise his position enough to reach out to Miranda. And that's what set our chain in motion. But that's true. I want to know why this, her part of the triangle is fascinating to you. I guess because that's, you know, they're discussing in part something I think about a lot, which is, you know, why do you actually make the thing? They have this disagreement basically about, did Miranda just do it for herself and she didn't need anybody else? And there's audience doesn't matter. None of that matters. It's just about your experience as an artist creating something because you have to create it. It's like in you, you have to get it out and then that's it. Well, then there's Miranda saying in three, I don't do it for anyone but myself. Mm -hmm. I kind of don't believe Miranda right then. I don't either because there's obviously a lot of impulses behind making these hard copies of the graphic novel and putting it all together and like the act of giving it, you know what I mean? So there is like, maybe this is kind of weird, but a healthy way of maybe not exactly performing, but thinking about the performing is I am being vulnerable in the way I can as an artist to connect with someone. That's when it's happening, right? Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Because like, it's about communication in the end. I think I've said it before on this podcast. All art is, is trying to communicate really, really well. Yeah. But Miranda, it's like a two-stepper. And I think (laughs) artists, it's sort of like, go away. I'm fucking getting my shit ready. That's step one. You can't see me or talk to me and I'm a monster. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm making stuff. And then like step two, the presentation. And it's sort of like, there's only so long we can wait sometimes. But I think that's Miranda's story just over 30 years. Like, let me present it to you now that I've destroyed our marriage by not being (laughs) pressed. So I don't know. Do you agree with the statement? The intention is communication. I agree with that wholeheartedly. It is communication. And I think that's true, too, of Clark's intention coming in. They're both trying to connect. It's just fucking hard sometimes when you got to tell the truth in there. Uh, Yeah, it's the telling of the truth that is always very difficult Getting at some truth about ourselves, about this world we're living in. Art is a beautiful way to try to communicate all these mixed up feelings we're having. I'm still a little kid writing on a legal pad in my room when I was seven. Thinking back, art has always mattered in my life, too. And it's sometimes funny to like look back how far I've come from the very shitty poetry I wrote as a teenager. Whoa, that shit was bad. I bet you it was better than you think. You know what? I like that note as one to end on because it's it makes me smile and it's very sweet of you to say. So why don't we bring our guests on? Let's introduce two of the stars of Station Eleven, Mackenzie Davis and Daniel Zavato. All right, motherfuckers, I am really looking forward to digging into the craft of acting and the artistry of this show with our guests today. While we know Mackenzie Davis is our year 20 Kirsten Raymond, Mackenzie starred in films like The Martian, Tully, Happiest Season, and Terminator Dark Fate, and TV like Halt and Catch Fire, which is fire in my opinion, and the award-winning episode of Black Mirror, San Junipero. And you may also recognize Daniel Zavato, who plays our year 20 Tyler from TV's Penny Dreadful, City of Angels, 
Here and Now, and Fear the Walking Dead, and films like Don't Breathe, It Follows, and Lady Bird. Daniel and Mackenzie, welcome to the fucking show. Hell yeah. Hi, guys. (laughs) Hi. So I wanted to start off on a kind of personal note. One of the reasons why I think this show has resonated so deeply for me is because it basically acts as an argument about the importance of art at the end of the world and the beginning of a new one. And I know a lot of writers and artists, especially at the beginning of the pandemic, were really struggling with the purpose of the work they do. And I was wondering if you two could kind of get into how you view the show's interest in art at the end of the world and how maybe art fulfills you during these very strange as fuck times. I don't know. I struggle with that sort of, there's always like toggling between the self-importance of like stories matter, (laughs) which in another voice stories do matter. And then, and I do believe that, (laughs) but I also think, I don't think you change the world by telling a story about an underrepresented group. I think the most we can hope for is really catharsis. And I feel that as a performer within the text of the thing, and I feel that as an audience member, that I can learn and I can experience catharsis through great art. I feel like there was a real moment during the pandemic where we were all um, feeling that stories could really change the world and bring us together. And I think our show does provide a space to experience catharsis. And shelter. And maybe shelter. Too. And shelter. Yeah, I agree. But I agree. I, I have the same thing Mackenzie has before Danny answers too. I'm just jumping in. I've said like eight times in the last couple of days, you can't punch the ocean. <laughs> like, like <laughs> I've said a different time, like the pandemic was like a tidal wave. Like no story is going to fucking make it go away, but maybe you can make a, some shelter together. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's the beautiful thing. But I really want to hear what Danny has to say too now. Well, I just think that it's like kind of like a universal language that we all speak. It's something that like unifies us together and, and brings us together to, you know, find a common ground or, you know, with the pandemic and all the stuff that's been happening these past two years, I feel like art is a saving grace, you know, and sometimes we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. And sometimes I do feel that this show is not going to save the world necessarily, but it's going to give us hope if things go really wrong, that there's something that that brings us together, you know. And I think one of the things about this show is we all went through a pandemic, right? Sometimes you see stuff on TV that you're not fully, like you don't fully identify yourself with. And I feel like the whole world went through this. Isn't it such an unusual moment? Like this many people have had a shared experience at the same time? That's what I mean. It's really rare. Usually you see something, you're like, "Ah, I kind of understand that. But this is something that everybody understands from my nephew who's eight years old and he's confused why he can't be with his friends. Same. Exactly. So like, and this is why I love Mackenzie, because we really got to see each other in, in a way with the pandemic and not having the ability of like going outside and being normal, right? Mackenzie and I, I guess we got really close to each other right away because we had to be vulnerable with each other. We had to share Mm -hmm. things that like, you know, I'm going through this or I'm going through that. And like sometimes when you're in a normal production and a pandemic is not going, you can kind of hide yourself a little bit more or or show that facade Mm -hmm. of of what you want the world to see. And this wasn't like that. How did that inform y'all's performances with characters who are 
at odds for some moments, I would say, were who have very different perspectives on the world, even though they were both greatly moved by the graphic novel Station Eleven and it's imprinted on them. The most interesting things for us in, in that dynamic was we shot this backwards. So we, in, in many ways, when you know that you can attain the last bit, which is where we really connect and we're really vulnerable with each other, now you just got to build the other part, right? So we know we're going to achieve it, right? You had a North Star. Exactly. Yeah. So we knew where mm. we were headed. So that was that was a gift, which, at, you know, when they tell you that, you're like, oh, fuck, man. Like, you're telling me we're shooting episode eight first and then 10 <laughs> and then we're la- we're finishing with two? But that North Star is what really, I think, was a gift. Now, go, Mac. <laughs> yes. Uh, I was just going to say that your word, your choice of imprinting is such an important thing for this relationship that, like, there are all the reasons in the world, which I've struggled with a lot, for Kirsten to hate and kill Tyler. He mm. runs a child army. They strap bombs to themselves. She watched them kill somebody who was like one of her family members. But there is this undercurrent of a type of siblinghood that's totally unspoken and is like an intangible closeness that they have through both being touched by Arthur and by this book and having gone down these like diverging paths, but being consumed with this sort of central relationship and central text for their entire life. And so I think us having a real sort of chemistry and love and admiration for each other as people let all of the disharmony play easily under this backdrop of like, but we know each other. I know you. Siblinghood is another really interesting word, Mackenzie. This show was hard because we had to, in the writer's room it happened too. It was like, I remember a day we were talking and I was like, you guys, I, I feel like we have to make up new feelings. <laughs> which is like an impossible charge to your writer's room. But it was, it was more, I was saying it in I'm scared voice. Uh, like, I don't know what I just said or if that's even possible, but it feels like to do your 20 right, like they would be feeling different kinds of feelings than we do. And I don't know how to get to them on the page. But, but yeah, that was sort of a resonant thing during COVID was this feeling of needing new language, like needing mm-hmm. new words to describe I mean, what's now in our show, like the before and the after, but it it felt like we didn't have the right words to explain the situation because none of us had been through this situation before and we were all going through it at the same time. So there was no like parent to be like, well, this is what this means and feels like. It was just everybody was sort of infantilized again, being like, who's the daddy? Like, who (laughs) will take care of us here? The daddy's gone. (laughs) Like, that is the problem there. Yeah. You know, obviously, I mentioned earlier, the show does act as a very intriguing argument about the importance and power of art. But even more specifically, it really speaks to the power of acting. Because there's so many levels to how acting is treated. There's the level of the traveling symphony they're you know putting on shakespeare plays there's also the level of people acting as if they're someone else and the scene in which tyler and kirsten have to act in front of clark to get into severn city airport is super fascinating there is no before no after 
Only now. I don't buy it. The past is safe. Everything else changes. I really just wanted to hear from you guys if in this world, the ability to act is the ultimate survival skill, because it's a really fascinating thing that you're seeing play out for different people on multiple levels. That was the first scene we shot, by the way. Holy shit. Like me and Mackenzie together. That Mm. was our first scene. Wow. Which is crazy and very exciting. It's always nerve-wracking because, you know, that's a moment in a time where we have gone through so much as two characters that, you know, I was very scared, you know, just because it's definitely a moment that's really important to both characters and to the trust that they had built to that moment where she is helping me to get my console and kind of like allow Tyler to follow with his plan. I think acting in general in our lives is a survival method, right, that we use when we are in situations where we have to feel like, okay, I'm nervous as hell right now, but I'm going to pretend I'm going to act like I'm not. And I think in this world where everything is a lot different, I think acting is even more of a survival. So I agree with what you said. Yeah. Well, Mackenzie, we talked a lot about the survival thing too, Mm. the skill of acting as a survival tool that's more interesting than the skill of knife throwing even but Mackenzie brought that into the show I I need to say that but I also want to hear what you have to say to Angelica's question well I didn't bring acting into the show but it's something you and I discussed and figured out I think pretty early on with Kirsten is the thing that makes her a good actor is the same thing that makes her a good survivor that it's like instinct like good actors don't muddy their instinct they move forward when they feel something they aren't watching themselves and analyzing they follow their intuition and with like very little interruption and that's what's Mm. really magnetic and interesting to watch by the same token I mean with the like knife throwing scene at the end of six like just hearing something and being able to turn and throw immediately without worrying who like there's just this sort of survival empath performance instinct that runs through everything she does that I think informs everything she does and also which is something you really spoke about Patrick and I didn't feel it as much until I saw the finished product or it really became whole for me this like relationship to art making as urgent and vital as surviving that it treats art as a lifeblood that it's not fanciful and you know so that we can have a nice roast at the end of the journey on the care like it (laughs) is as high stakes as anything else in this world it makes life worth living when life is so unbelievably difficult and to do it well and to challenge yourself is as important as your next meal. And I love that because that's how it feels when you make shit that you care about. Mm. So I have a scene-specific question for you, Mackenzie. When Sarah, the conductor, is dying, you know, Patrick kind of talked 
to us a little bit about the dynamics of that scene with you in the air duct and her on the bed in the room. How did the sort of geography of all of that and how do you navigate that as an actor? Because it seems like a really interesting constraint to kind of deal with, to get that emotion across, even though we're obviously not fully seeing your face during important parts of the scene. The geography was they built an air duct that was elevated over the ground and I crawled in it and it looks like the vaginal canal and I climb out of it at the end and it's so beautiful. That shot is so exquisite. Helen Shaver. Helen Shaver. But Helen treats it like it was like a coincidence, but it must have been this That was Helen. Yeah, everything was planned, but it's so gorgeous. I don't know. I'm always like, I don't know why... I'm an actor because I don't love being on camera. And I like my favorite thing in the world is being in a small, dark place, feeling things authentically and it not really being captured. And I'm like, that's not a job. That's a closet. (laughs) (laughs) That literally was her job that day. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. And being like away from people where I can't, you don't have a lot of people that come up and fuss with you in between takes, much as that's a necessary part of it. Love it. Great. But it's so nice to be like, I'll just be in the canal. Let me know when we go again and I'll think about things and then start my scene again. Like, I just love that shit. So, um, yeah, it was really a nice scene. This was a really special day. And I was walking onto our huge stage and this space, I was like, what's going on here? Helen has this power to like make these bubbles of like warm, empathic, calm. Mm. And this was one of the first days you had worked closely with her, Mackenzie, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. And my memory, Mackenzie, is that she was giving you great stuff through that whole thing, but she was kind of whispering. She drops into sort of a director's voice. It's sort of like a sound bath. It's really weird. She just like tells you a story, which I love rather than doing a scene and then being like, all right, uh, like what should we do for the next one? Yeah. Okay. Good. Good idea, boss. Like she just keeps it really kind of close and quiet and it's like ASMR and it's really, really nice. It is ASMR. Holy Mm. shit. That's so true. Yeah. Mm. Daniel, I have a very specific question for you about Tyler. Cause Uh Oh, His relationship to the past is super fascinating to me. Obviously, he's very much a burn-it-all-down sort of idea with the past. And I totally understand it, but I was wondering if you could kind of unpack his relationship to the past and how that bitterness sort of developed, if you even consider it bitterness. Or maybe it's, in your mind, something different. Yeah, you know, one of the things with, with this character is I think a lot of it aligned with me in my own personal journey. Uh, so I could understand him in a very visceral way. You know, like I wasn't trying to find the right, you know, sometimes with acting, you try and find the right keys to open the doors that allow you to feel certain things. With this one, it was very much there. It was very much present in my own life, not to get, you know, into what I was going through. Let's do it. Let's do it. Therapy session. (laughs) Should I lay down? (laughs) But um, I believe that at the core of who he is, he's very much a hurt young boy. 
who in many ways didn't have the world to grow up. Mm. And he had to kind of find his own thing, which was Station Eleven. And that's what kept him afloat, right? And so I think that in many ways he doesn't, clearly he doesn't analyze it as much as Kirsten's character did. I think for him it's just like a folktale or something that that he remembered the things that he wanted to remember and, and allowed him to keep going, you know? But I think that Tyler is just a kid who never felt the love or never felt like he was enough or never felt like he was important in his parents' life. And then the world kind of went to shit and then he had to deal with all this stuff. You know, it's, it's sad, but at the same time, that's why I think he connects with this cult of under the undersea right because it's a bunch of kids that are again alone in this new world and i know he does certain things where he goes to town and he takes them and all this stuff which let's not talk about that because he's cool i think that's why he connects with all of them because deep down he is a kid himself you know and in many ways kind of like a father figure to them I don't know. I always think that when you go through things, and this is just the way I see it, but I think sometimes when you go through certain things in your own life, you kind of want to change them. You know, you want to change them for the next generation or for the next couple of kids. So I think he, there's genuine like care for these people and, and for, for these people. No, sorry, for these kids. They um, are people. Yeah. You know, like that's the thing in the show that, uh, that I think Tyler treats children with dignity. Yeah. The, one of my favorite scenes in the show you guys is, is from six it's also helen shaver jam but it was when you guys are talking and Mackenzie, i'm because tyler's been running around with this story that's his for a long time and then this person shows up who owns the text kind of and i also think kirsten knows the lines better like yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. because she's a shakespearean actor like she knows all the lines exactly and maybe you guys can talk about that scene when you come together after this storytelling time. I love Mackenzie when you're like, obviously it's because uh, it's Kay inside the suit. That blue spaceman really calmed me down. That's because Dr. Eleven is a kid. It's Kay inside the suit, the rebel undersea leader. She's in a, a time loop. I never thought about it like that. Do you think Kirsten has a very adamant opinion about what Station Eleven means? Or 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 just talk about what you were playing, sort of? Yeah, like- I mean, I think she's like a theologian. I think that she has studied and changed her interpretation of the text and like deepened it with experience. And she's seeing somebody who has a child's view of the text, like a superficial interpretation. And she's like, no, it's a time loop, you idiot. Like, have you studied this at all? Which Um, is pretty much our relationship, you know? I mean, I didn't know how to make these headphones work, and she knew it. Danny is so upset because I figured out you had to put this little sock on the mic, and he just couldn't read the instructions. But you're making me... So my old boss, Damon Lindelof, and I would say my mentor as a writer, Mm. he texted me the other day, and he was like, did you guys consider doing the whole graphic novel. But I'm sort of listening to you talk, Mackenzie. I'm sort of like, 
Let's do Station Eleven with all I know. of our cast. Wouldn't that be cool? Like, it is Let's a limited do... series. If there was a second series instead of like a continuation of these stories, if it was just like straight up sci-fi Station Eleven. Yes, <laughs> with all of our cast, it could be sort of like a between the acts kind of thing too, where it's sort of like no context, but pause yeah. on that story. But yeah. it's just like straight up do the graphic novel. That would be yeah. so dope. That'd be dope. It would yeah. be dope. Mm. Are you guys Very available? Dope. I want to go back to something you said a while ago, Mackenzie, where you fully understood episode seven. And episode seven is one I think about quite a bit because I'm like, damn, if I could like go back to my most traumatic incidents in life and speak to my younger self, you know, what would Mm. I say? Can you talk about just that dynamic for Kirsten and the healing process of that episode and especially like playing off of Matilda Lawler and like how you craft a relationship with an actor who's also playing the same character just at different points in life. Jesus! It's okay. He survives. You live here with him. Frank too? Get to see him again. I shouldn't have done the play. This didn't happen because you did the play. This isn't your fault. This is just what happened. I think it's such a fascinating piece of work on all levels. And I'm just curious to hear from you about that. Yeah, I don't know where to start. Starting with Matilda, who, like, originated the role. Like, she was playing Kirsten a year before I got to play Kirsten. And with no conversation between us, she's such an intuitive, like, wise actor. She's amazing. And that's evident in every frame of the show. And for us to start playing it together, I mean, I don't know. I always think it's interesting being an actor. I'm like fully a grown woman but I still think I'm like never understand anything where I'm operating on (laughs) old ideas of having grown up reading interviews with actors and hearing about their research and being like oh yes well that's how a person becomes an actor or or that's how you perform as an actor you do all this research and you do these sort of like very methody things with people and if you're both playing a part you live in a house together and like only eat sort of beans for a while And all of this is to say I did none of that and we had almost no conversations about it, which always makes me feel like kind of insufficient, like we should have done more. But I think, you know, when something works and when you're just going to get in your own way by doing a bunch of sort of performative work and Matilda and I hung out a bit, I think like energy wise, we dig each other and have a really easy energy between us. And, uh, they they also feel like distinct people. Like who Kirsten is in that house and in that environment is not the same person as Kirsten is in year 20. Mm. The little Kirsten is a part of who I am and being able to have that be the first episode I shot and bearing witness to this foundational trauma and nice time in my life was a huge boon for me as an actor. But as far as us being sort of identical, it felt beside the point. I feel like we were in conversation with each other more than 
playing the same person, you know? I mean, I, I heard you, Mackenzie, on the uh, EPK talk about how you acquired actual memories. Mm-hmm. Like, not Kirsten, but as Mackenzie. Like, so this is a weird advantage of the crossboard, I guess, but like, the going forward, that was your memory. Oh my God. Seeing the face of the the intruder who I I don't know how much it shows in the show. He comes in for that moment and does the most beautiful performance of a terrified man whose body, this is how I'm reading it, is coded as dangerous. Like, Mm. that his only way to survive is to be scary because that's what his body looks like. And he is, you can only see his eyes through this balaclava and they're watering and he's so terrified of being around people again but needing to survive. And it is like one of the most beautiful images I have in my memory of making the show is this man's eyes. I I can't remember how much of it actually figures in the episode, but it's so gorgeous. It's there. But speaking of uh, incredible directors, Lucy oh, Cherniak directed Cherniak. episode seven mm-hmm. and she came on the podcast. You want to know the note she gave to that guy? What? Play the scene like there's someone standing behind you with a gun at your head. Oh, oh wow. Mm. Great. Damn. Yeah. And like, that's what he played. Not like, to be played. Yeah. And it's so... Because I want to work uh, with Lucy. God damn. She's so cool. I know. Because as a child me, I run out of the room and I don't get to see. And then as an adult me, I see somebody who's like more or less my age, not this like idea of an adult mm. looking as terrified as everybody else. Oh, it's so beautiful. I love that episode. It's so good. But it's monster. I mean, I think young Kirsten saw a monster. Yeah, and yeah. To the monsters. We I didn't say it. Monsters. I'm saying it. <laughs> <laughs> Teed it up. <laughs> but adult Kirsten is strong enough to stand her ground and watch, I think, in a new way. And I think, like, to see that he was human. Yeah. That's, that's the show. Yeah. 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 I think that's a really good point to end on ways of looking and how the show and these people in the show have kind of grown in how they look at the world and themselves. And I want to say thank you so much to both of you. This has been such a fun conversation. Like I am loving the whole vibe of this and I wish I didn't have to wrap it up, but thank you guys so much for making time to come on and speak to us about your craft and how this show has affected you as artists. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you guys it. so much. It's so lovely to all be together and, and talk about this big, lovely thing we did. And also, I love you both. I, lo- I love you motherfuckers. <laughs> 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 like that. Angelica, I bet your head is full of a lot of really interesting thoughts uh, right now after that conversation that I want to hear you talk about. I don't even know where to begin. But what really struck me was hearing how they collaborated, how they found intimacy and communion with one another working together on these characters. I thought the beauty of the show also shines through them. You can see it very clearly. Yeah, in their skill professionally, but also in their spirits. Mm, Definitely. It's like you connect again on the personal after a hard day at work or you never disconnect and that makes the work better somehow too oh it totally does i think 
that vulnerability is really important to art. We've talked about this before, you know, art is a form of connection and communication. And to really capture the honesty that you want to get to, you have to be vulnerable. And I think there are two artists who just hearing from them today, you can tell how much they're willing to be vulnerable and sometimes not know what's happening next. And you have to follow instinct. I love that part of the conversation with Mackenzie, especially. Follow your instinct. Don't muddy it. Don't muddy it. We all muddy it sometimes. I muddy it all the time. But on that note, Thanks, as always, to everyone listening. Tune in next week when we're joined by Jessica Rhodes, one of the executive producers of Station Eleven, and Emily St. John Mandel, author of the novel Station Eleven. Strangers, no danger. We'll speak to them about the differences and similarities between the series and the novel and dig into episode 109 entitled Dr. Chaudhary. Can't wait to hear what they have to say. Me too. Station Eleven, the podcast, is a production of HBO Max and iHeartRadio and hosted by Patrick Somerville and me, Angelica Jade Bastien. Our executive producer is Molly Sosha, with special thanks to Ethan Fixell. Our engineer extraordinaire is James Foster. This episode was written and researched by Kate Voss. If you liked what you heard, don't forget to rate and review Station Eleven, the podcast, on the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. And don't forget to subscribe or follow the podcast for free so you don't miss an episode. You can watch every episode of Station Eleven on HBO Max.